0: Fifteen years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and I'm the host and the creator of at Serial Underscore Killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Now, of course, I want to give a special thanks to my patrons, Florence, Teresa, Sarah, Sophie, Nanette, two Emmas, Gabrielle, Gaylin, Cassandra, Brie, David, who, by the way, left me the loveliest comment, and my girl, Judy and John. Thank you guys so, so much. I really appreciate you. So this podcast is going to be on Carrie Stainer. Carrie Anthony Stainer was born on August 13, 1961, in Merced, California, which is near Yosemite National Park. So let's get into some history for that time. John F. Kennedy became the 35th President of the United States this year. Kennedy, the youngest person to be elected president at the time, was also the first Catholic president, which was a huge deal back then. He was a decorated World War II veteran who had served in Congress as a member of the House of Representatives and a senator from Massachusetts, and he came from a family that had been previously involved in politics. So during his inauguration, he said his famous line, quote, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country." Kennedy would remain as the U.S. President until he was assassinated in November of 1963. Also in 1961, JFK established the Peace Corps by issuing Executive Order No. 10924. The Peace Corps trains young Americans in community development efforts and then deploy them around the world as helpful volunteers in developing countries. Their intended goal was to promote democracy, freedom, and peace by building positive American influence around the world, acting as a counter-effort against Soviet groups promoting communism during the Cold War. The Cuban Revolution ended with Fidel Castro holding power. Cuba then declared that it was now a communist country and nationalized land and businesses, including U.S. assets totaling $1 billion. President Eisenhower then approved funding for assault on Southern Cuba by anti-Castro Cuban exiles backed by our own CIA. They then mounted an unsuccessful attempt to overthrow Castro known as the Bay of Pigs that occurred in 1961. Then JFK took office as Castro banned free elections. During the Battle of the Bay of Pigs, 118 were killed, and another over 1,200 were captured by Cuban forces, and yet another over 1,100 prisoners were released in exchange for $53 million in food and medicine. Now, the Soviet Union conducted the largest ever nuclear bomb test, despite worldwide objections. Named the Tsar Bomba, as well as Kuzkina Mat and Big Ivan, was detonated over the Novaya-Zemlia Island in the Arctic. The strength of this blast was equivalent to about 50 megatons or over 50 million tons of TNT and registered as a 5.0 on the Richter scale. Light from this blast was seen over 600 miles away from the detonation site. Also this year, East German authorities closed the border between East and West Berlin and the construction of the Berlin Wall began. And then the World Wildlife Fund or WWF was officially founded and opened its first office this year. It was created by the world's top conservationists as a means to organize and collaborate on conservation fundraising throughout the globe. The WWF used its influence and resources to bring public awareness to conservation issues with the goal of lessening humanity's impact on natural wildlife habitats and preserving endangered species. Since its founding, the WWF has become the world's largest conservation organization. That's pretty impressive. There was flooding in Somalia. The UN condemned apartheid, thank God. Segregation was ended on railways in the U.S. South. South Africa became an independent republic. And the last journey of the Orient Express occurred, traveling from Paris to Bucharest. Also born this year was Scott Baio, Peter Jackson, George Clooney, Lawrence Fishburne, Michael J. Fox, Wayne Gretzky, and Barack Obama. So this was the atmosphere that Carrie was born into. So I have to warn you guys that this story is kind of convoluted and it takes some twists and some turns, so you're going to have to stick with me, okay? But I promise you it's worth it. So Carrie's father, Delbert Stainer, was born in May of 1933 in Farmington, New Mexico. His parents were Jesse and Leela Stainer, who were Mormons. Now, Delbert moved to California in 1951, once he was 18 years old. He served in the U.S. Army from 1953 through 1957 as a staff sergeant and fought during the Korean War. So according to his obituary, he worked in sawmills throughout California before starting work in the California canners and growers in 1961 and continued there until 1988. He then worked for Atwater Canning as a maintenance mechanic before he retired in 1995, though some sources say he was fired. He died in 2013 at 79 years old. Carrie's mother was Mary Catherine, or Kay, Augustine. Kay grew up in a Christian family and attended a religious boarding school where apparently she was subjected to physical and psychological harassment. When she was able, she left that school and joined the Mormon church. Kay attested to the fact that her mother was very unloving and she said that her father had molested her as a child. Delbert and Kay, who was, by the way, eight years younger than him, got married in 1960 and they had five children two boys and three girls, and Carrie was the oldest. The parents were after nothing more than a small town stake in a Central Valley farm community. Delbert punching a clock as a mechanic, Kay grabbing whatever service jobs that she could find. Kay would eventually run a daycare center out of their home. So according to recordnet.com, the family home was also occupied by Kay's parents who were actually divorced and did not acknowledge each other. An example was given that when it was time for dinner, someone would ring a bell and Kay's father would appear to eat his dinner and he always ate alone. Once he was done and he had left the dining room, Someone would ring the bell again and Kay's mother, who was at this point blind, would come in and eat by herself. Once she left, the bell was rang a third time and the rest of the family could come in and eat together. This would be Kay, Delbert and the children. Kay then stated that she allowed her incestual, pedophile father to live in their home but, you know, kept him away from her daughters. But according to court testimony, the girls weren't safe. State authorities said Delbert, their own father, had continually molested them as well. But sources say once his assaults were discovered, he was, quote, sent to therapy. When Carrie was three years old, he was diagnosed with trichotillomania, which is a condition where someone uncontrollably rips their own hair out. Now it is a complex mental disorder with very specific symptoms and is classified as an obsessive compulsive spectrum disorder. Hair is most often ripped out of the scalp, but any hair on any part of the body could be affected by this condition. So in 1967, when Carrie was six years old, the family lived on an almond tree plantation farm and tried to successfully farm but Delbert just wasn't cut out for it and the family moved back to Merced. This was around the time that Carrie first started fantasizing about harming women and girls. He even admitted that his thoughts were alarmingly sadistic at this very young age. He would find himself imagining having a neighbor girl trapped in some underground bunker when he was only eight years old and these fantasies only became more intense and consuming as he grew older. But you know, his family was completely unaware of the thoughts that he was having. His mother said, quote, Carrie was the ideal son. Very seldom did he get into trouble. He was a good student, a good artist, and he was very loving, unquote. Of course, it was stated that in the Stainer home, emotions were taboo. And as Jeffrey Dahmer once said, most of Carrie's thoughts would have been unshareable. So when Carrie was 11 years old and his younger brother, Stephen, only seven, the unthinkable happened. And this is where I will plant my disclaimer disclaimer and tell you to stick with me, okay? So in December of 1972, seven-year-old Stephen Stainer was walking home from school when he was kidnapped by a man named Kenneth Parnell. So a little background on Kenneth. He was born in Amarillo, Texas in September of 1931. He was born during the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl era. And we've talked about that quite a bit. People struggled. Later, his mother took him and his siblings and moved to Bakersfield, California, because his father had abandoned the family when he was only six years old. He then spent quite a bit of his youth in and out of trouble with the law as well as mental institutions. In March of 1951, 20 year old Kenneth was arrested for sodomizing a young boy as well as impersonating an officer, which is how he got a hold of the boy to begin with. And he was sentenced to four years in a state hospital. He escaped and was later found. But he also received a psychiatric evaluation, where he was diagnosed as a sexual psychopath, and the recommendation was that he should be held indefinitely in the hospital. But after a few years, he was paroled. The condition to his parole was that he would continue to seek counseling, and he did, but not for long. Now he later stated that he had kidnapped the young boy and molested him because, quote, my wife was pregnant and I had to find another outlet, unquote. His wife divorced him in 1957. That first marriage produced a daughter and a later marriage produced yet another daughter. Kenneth would later go on to say that he had been molested at 13 years old by someone who was staying in his mother's home in Bakersfield. She ran a boarding house. Now, when he was in his early 30s, he was arrested and convicted of armed robbery in Utah. His second wife actually divorced him after this conviction. So fast forward to December 1972, 41-year-old Kenneth worked at the Yosemite Lodge. And this lodge will um, come in handy later in the story. He and a co-worker saw Stephen walking home from school, and they lured him to their vehicle where they kidnapped him. They asked him if his mother would be interested in donating items to a nearby church, and Stephen said, yeah, I'm sure she would. They then offered him a ride home, and at first he said no because he was only a few blocks from his own house, but the men said it would make things easier if they traveled together to his house, and remember, he was only seven. So Stephen agreed and he got in the car, but once he realized that they weren't actually going to his house, he began, you know, voicing his concerns and the men told him that they were going to call his parents, calm down. They were going to ask if he could spend the night with them. Kenneth then began asking Stephen about his home life and what kind of trouble that he had ever gotten into with his parents all of this information that he would then use against the young boy to manipulate him into compliance. Stephen was taken to Kenneth's cabin only around 20 miles away from his own home. It would seem that Kenneth had already bought a lot of toys to keep at his house knowing that he was going to abduct a child. It didn't take long for Stephen to become scared and begin asking to be taken home. Kenneth assured him that his parents had said it was quite all right for him to spend the night, and then the mental manipulation began. Kenneth began telling young Stephen that he needed to be kept from his family to, you know, give them space because he behaved so badly at home. And the very first night that Stephen had been kidnapped, the sexual, emotional, and mental abuse began. Three days later, Kenneth left the house while his co-worker was there with the boy, then returned and told young Stephen that he had been to court, he had obtained custody of him, so now he was his, that his parents didn't want him anymore and they couldn't afford him anyway. Stephen instantly begged his captor to take him home, but Kenneth refused. He told him he was his father now and his new name was Dennis. Now, not long after, he took Stephen and moved to Santa Rosa, California, north of San Francisco, whereas Merced was a notable distance southeast of San Francisco. He enrolled him at a local school under the name of Dennis Parnell and demanded he not ever tell anyone what his real name was. And thus, Stephen's new life began. Now let's go back to Carrie Stainer. Carrie's parents were, of course, horrified and completely devastated that Stephen had gone missing, period. Carrie later talked about how he had never seen his father cry up to that point. As the older brother, Carrie later stated that he felt a sense of responsibility for not protecting Stephen from harm, which is a very heavy load for a child, regardless. He also felt he might have been at least indirectly responsible because of the obsessive thoughts he had about holding the neighbor girl against her will and that somehow caused Stephen to be kidnapped. So Carrie's parents would later say that they both became emotionally distant. Delbert flipped between all consuming efforts to try to find his son and suicidal depression. He openly admitted pushing Carrie away, saying his, quote, real son was gone. Kay said her own father told her to view the kidnapping as a positive because now she had less children to worry about feeding and clothing, which, side note, what a horrid thing to say. She said her father also insisted she never cry or show emotion because it would make her appear, quote, crazy like her mother. About six months after Stephen was taken, 11-year-old Carrie was sexually victimized by an uncle. This experience certainly damaged and added fuel to the fire, growing up in an environment rife with dysfunction and deviant sexuality. You see, according to a psychiatrist who would later evaluate, Carrie stated the Stainer family tree was filled with mental illness and sexual abuse going back a shocking five generations. One of his sisters stated that in addition to her father's unwanted advances, Carrie started peeping on her and inappropriately touching her when she was just 10 years old. A cousin also said that Carrie spied on her and his own sisters and a neighbor girl apparently hiding under the beds and secretly videotaping them in the bathroom and the bedroom. One relative described the child's sexual abuse in the family as quote, like a family sickness because it had been going on for so long. Now going back to Steven, Kenneth moved him around some again, forcing him to use the name Dennis Gregory Parnell and allowing him to retain his real birth date. Kenneth also began to allow Stephen to drink alcohol and smoke cigarettes. And once he knew Stephen wasn't going to run away, he pretty much let him have the run. That is to say, he let him have complete freedom. Of course, he was not free from the sexual abuse that he endured nearly every single night. Kenneth did get Stephen a dog though, and Stephen absolutely adored this dog. For about a year and a half, Kenneth had a woman named Barbara Mathias living with them and according to Stephen, she took part in raping him when he was just nine years old. Barbara also tried to lure another very young boy into Kenneth's car, but the boy ran off. She later said that she had no idea that Stephen had been kidnapped, which personally I think is bullshit. So, time goes on. The heartbreak of losing a child kept the household awkward and unsettled for years. Carrie attended high school. He later admitted to wanting to see his sisters naked. One of his sisters had a friend over and he proceeded to grab that friend's breast and expose himself to her. He said he was deeply bothered by the media attention that his family got due to Steven's disappearance. His mother nearly refused to leave the house, and his father drove aimlessly around looking for clues about his son. But at school, his peers stated he was shy but seemed to be good, and he played on the school's baseball team. Interesting to note, his name in nearly every yearbook was either misspelled or listed as Gary. But mostly, Cary enjoyed going with his cousins into Yosemite National Park to hunt and to fish, swim and explore the caves. His dream was to become an artist and everyone around him remarked that he was actually truly talented. And so guys, I think this is a good spot to stop and take a look at Carrie's childhood before we get into the heavy stuff. So this family guys, right? Wow. So going to one of my favorite sources, psychology today, we see that pedophilia is, quote, an ongoing sexual attraction to prepubescent children, unquote. It is a paraphilia, meaning a person's sexual arousal and gratification depend upon fantasies about engaging in sexual behavior that is atypical and extreme, and in this case, children aged 13 years old and younger. There are further subcategories, but that's for another podcast if you want it. Unfortunately, most pedophiles are men, but women are not immune either. The attraction can be towards boys, more girls, or both. It's hard to get accurate statistics on the prevalence of this because people would have to be willing to disclose this information and as you can imagine, they don't really want to. It is thought to affect, in men, about 3-5% to of the population. With women, it is a fraction of that. But then, interestingly, it's estimated that about 20% of American children alone have been sexually molested, making pedophilia a common paraphilia. Which, of course, is completely and utterly unacceptable. And again, if you want me to, we can do a deep dive into this whole thing later. And I don't really want to firmly place myself on my soapbox just yet. Now, the most common offenders are family, friends, and relatives, but we knew this. The cause is not known. There is some evidence, however, that it may run in families, but the argument is, is it genetics or is it a learned behavior? And this, my beautiful murder fam, is the issue with the Stainer family. Be it genetic or learned, Carrie's family had it on both sides in droves. His maternal grandfather was a pedophile. His own father was a pedophile. Five generations, guys. And then we have the grandparents living in the home in the odd kind of ritualistic activities that went on around dinner time. It's so strange. And as a younger child, Carrie was already beginning to fantasize about doing deviant things with little girls. Now, there was a study in the Society for Research in Child Development regarding relations between an early interest in violent fantasy and children's social understanding and comprehension, antisocial and emotions behavior, as well as interactions with friends. This study involved 40 control children and 40, quote, hard to manage children. The children's understanding of the emotional consequences of antisocial and pro-social actions were studied. So now the hard to manage group showed much higher rates of violent fantasy and was related to poor executive control and language ability, frequent antisocial behavior, displays of anger and refusal to help peers poor communication and coordination of play, high conflicts and less empathic moral sensibility two years later. And then we have the actual kidnapping of Carrie's little brother. Now he loved his brother and the guilt he felt at 11 years old for believing he hadn't done enough to keep his brother safe would have been a very heavy burden to bear. Add to the mix of his already occurring aggressive and violent fantasies, his father's statement of how his real son was gone, and both parents emotionally unplugging from him, well, we all know that's a recipe for disaster. And unless this has happened to you or one of your children, and I hope to God it doesn't, none of us can fully understand the devastation. So I can have empathy for the parents. I can't. I can imagine how difficult it would be to stay emotionally available to your other children when you are so overwhelmingly consumed with your missing child and envisioning all the twisted scenarios that are going through your head. Carrie specifically talked about how much he hated the media coverage and attention he received because of his brother's kidnapping and his inappropriate behavior became more intense. So constant tension in the home from and between multiple people, a disturbing amount of family history of incestual pedophilia. His mind already twisted with violent fantasies and his brother missing. And we already know that this doesn't end well. So let's get back into it. When Carrie was 19 years old, the family finally got the news that they have been waiting for. Stephen had been found. You see, as Stephen had been going through puberty, he stopped looking like a little boy. So Kenneth began looking for another very young boy to take. Now Kenneth tried to get Stephen to help him kidnap children, but Stephen later admitted to making sure that something random would happen so that they would not take anyone. But then in February of 1980, when Stephen was 15 years old, Kenneth successfully kidnapped another little boy five-year-old Timothy White. Stephen recognized the panic and distress in this little boy and decided that he was going to make sure that Timothy was going to get back home. So the next month while Kenneth was at work, Stephen took Timothy by the hand, walked out of their residence and hitchhiked into the nearest, you know, in the city. He then walked the boy to the police station and told Timothy to go in and ask for help. Stephen actually intended on staying outside, but thankfully officers saw both of the boys and stopped them and learned their true identities. Kenneth was arrested the very next day and after a background check, they found his 1951 conviction of sodomy of a child. Stephen remembered that his first name was actually really Stephen and there is a book by Mike Eccles titled, quote, I just know my name is Stephen. He was hailed as a hero and he returned home. The media frenzy that had begun to settle stirred up again, and Carey stated every single thing became about his brother again. Mike Eccles, that author, stated in his book, quote, after Kay walked back to the stove after setting the table, Stephen remarked to her that she had forgotten one place setting. Who, she said, and Stephen pointed over to his brother. Oh, yes, she said, Carrie, And Carrie openly admitted to being very jealous of the attention and the gifts that Stephen was getting. Not long after, in his very early 20s, Carey entirely gave up on his dream of being an artist. In fact, he really didn't know what he wanted to do. It was at this time, during his feeling of hopelessness, that he reportedly spent ever-increasing amounts of time in Yosemite by himself because he wanted to prove the existence of Bigfoot and he actually said he saw him once. In his later twenties, he had a complete nervous breakdown in front of a female friend and co-worker telling her he needed to assassinate their boss in the glass company he was working for at the time. During these same years, Stephen traveled just a little bit and publicly spoke about what had happened to him and he himself admitted to having trouble adjusting to the more structured environment of his parents' house. With Kenneth, he had been able to drink and smoke and, you know, do whatever he wanted. As you can imagine, things were just weird. He sometimes thought it might have been better if he hadn't come home. He did get a bit of counseling, but nothing more, as his own father said he didn't need it. He would also not speak about the things that Kenneth did to him. He wouldn't. It was said that the other kids at school bullied him terribly. So he dropped out. He married young and together they had two children. He helped with various projects about his story. But in September of 1989, he died from a fatal head injury. He received when his motorcycle hit a car. And believe it or not, at his funeral, the then 14 year old Timothy was one of his pallbearers. And this is what sent Kerry into a tailspin and the nervous breakdown he had in front of his female coworker. The next year in 1990, Carrie was the one that found his uncle shot dead in his home and he had actually lived with that uncle for a short period of time. In 1991, he attempted to commit suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning. In 1995, the now 34-year-old Carrie entered himself into a hospital after experiencing yet another nervous breakdown. Two years later, he was arrested for possession of marijuana and methamphetamine. The case was dropped and he then took a job as a craftsman at the Cedar Lodge near Yosemite. So now we have Carrie a hotel handyman and champion underachiever. For two years, he worked at this lodge and was also, interestingly enough, a recreational nudist. And then in 1999, he could no longer contain his fantasies. He put together a kill kit, rope, and duct tape, a kitchen knife, and a video camera, and a gun. He then began to watch carefully customers coming in and out of the lodge. On February 15th, he saw that a woman and two teenage girls were staying at the lodge by themselves. He knocked on the door and was allowed in because quite frankly, he was the maintenance man. In the room was 42-year-old Carol Sund and her 15-year-old daughter, Julie. With them was Julie's friend, 16-year-old Silvina Peloso. Carrie later stated when he entered the room, Carol was reading a book and the girls were watching TV. He then pulled a gun on the girls and told them that he was, quote, desperate. You know, he was just going to rob them. He then ordered the ladies to lay face down on the beds. He then tied their hands together gagged them and took both teen girls into the bathroom. He started to strangle Carol stating it took a full five minutes, which he said surprised him. Quote, I didn't realize how hard it is to strangle a person. It's not easy. I had very little feeling. It was like performing a task, Unquote. And once she was dead, he then stuffed her into the trunk of her rental car. He then went back into the motel room and began ripping the clothes off of the teen girls. He then ordered them to begin being kind of sexually active with each other, but the girls cried incessantly and he was beginning to get agitated. He began to strangle Sylvina while she was bent over the bathtub. Once she was dead, he began to sexually assault Julie. When he was done, he left her tied up and lying on the bed to watch TV while he cleaned up the entire crime scene. He even thought to make sure to wipe down the sheet so that none of his hair was even on it. He put Sylvina into the trunk with Carol. He said, quote, it felt like I was in control for the first time in my life. Unquote. At 4 a.m., he wrapped a naked Julie up in a blanket he put her into the passenger seat of that rental car and drove away. He had no plan as to where he was going to go or what he was going to do. He then drove to Lake Don Pedro, carried Julie up a path to a clearing where he could see the water. He said, quote, I told her I wished I could keep her, Unquote. He told her he loved her and then slit her throat and hid her in some bushes. He then drove the car with the two other bodies in the trunk into the forest as far as he could, walked out of the forest and caught a cab home. He then returned to the car two days later, scratched the words, quote, we have Sarah, because Julie told him that her name was Sarah, on the hood of the car and then set the car on fire. Over a month later, the burned-up car, along with the remains of the two females, were found off of a logging road. Julie's remains were found around a week later after Carrie had sent an anonymous map to the police. Now, with this map, he had included a letter stating, quote, We had fun with this one, unquote. So the police began questioning employees of the lodge since that was the last place the girls had been seen and Carrie was not immediately a suspect. No one wanted to suspect him because his brother had been kidnapped. I mean, they just assumed he'd be the last person to ever violate someone's rights like that. So he did that in February of 1999. He killed again in July. 26-year-old Joy Armstrong was a naturalist at the Yosemite Institute. She had worked her shift and had gone home to her pretty secluded cabin out in the woods that she shared with her boyfriend and a roommate. This particular night, she was alone. Carrie pulled his car up and saw her outside. He stopped, he got out, and he approached her, asking her if she believed in Bigfoot. Bigfoot. He told her how he had spotted him before all while making sure she was alone. He then pulled his gun on her and ordered her to go inside the cabin. He bound her with duct tape and he gagged her. He then walked her through the back of the cabin and then forced her to get into his vehicle. He then drove back up the road, only Joy wasn't going to go quietly. Once he had slowed the vehicle, she managed to get the door open and jump out. She got to her feet and began running through the brush and trees, headed toward a cabin where she knew some people that lived. Carrie stopped the car and ran after her and really it wasn't any effort for him to catch her. He grabbed her and then he slit her throat, only he kept slitting her throat until he decapitated her. He then dumped her body in a drainage ditch and threw her head 40 feet away and she was found pretty quickly. So not long after, Carrie was questioned again about Joy's murder and subsequently was released. However, witnesses stated that they had seen a vehicle matching the description of his car near her cabin. Tire tracks were matched to his vehicle and he was brought in for questioning. It was then that he confessed to Joy's murder and then the murder of the other three girls. He tried to say that voices in his head told him to kill the first three girls. He also said that he had been fantasizing about killing females since he was seven years old. He even had the audacity to say that they should make a movie about him like they did his brother. So, FBI Special Agent Jeffrey Reinick had interrogated Carrie and was later interviewed by A&E's true crime blog and this is what he said, quote, it was just Stainer and me alone in that interview room and he had dropped a bombshell, claiming responsibility not just for the killing of Joy Armstrong, but also for the murders of Carol and Julie Sund and Sylvina Peloso. But now he was imposing conditions for his cooperation. I asked what he wanted. He spoke obliquely, like he didn't want his request to sound as bad as it was. Quote, You work all kinds of cases, he began hemming and hawing as if he wanted me to fill in the blanks, like he did when he wanted me to guess what cases he was referring to when he said he could give me closure. Eventually, he got around to the point, quote, I'd like to see pictures of little girls, unquote. Child pornography, I asked, incredulous. He wouldn't call it what it was, just said again, quote, you know, pictures and videos of little girls, unquote. He said he thought we might have such evidence stored in the building, We knew we couldn't deliver on any of his demands and tried to get him to prioritize what was really important to him, but he kept reiterating that the porn was his number one request and, in fact, a deal breaker. He even got particular, saying that he didn't want to see just a few stills, but a big stack of pictures and especially videos. Quote, It's weird because I love life so much, he said, without a hint of irony. One minute, he said, he'd be enjoying time with friends, marveling at nature, and thinking high-minded thoughts. Quote, and the next minute, it's like I could kill every person on the face of the earth. Unquote. It just mentally tortures you, the FBI agent went on to say constantly back and forth like a tennis match. So during Carey's trial. His lawyers argued that he was incapacitated based on his family history of sexual abuse, mental illness, his brother's kidnapping, and, you know, everything else. He was diagnosed with a mild form of autism and paraphilia. He was ultimately sentenced to death in December 2002 and is awaiting execution by lethal injection, and he is still alive today. So tell me guys, what do you think? I mean, I don't really even know that we need to go over all of the details again. Five generations of pedophilia on both sides of his family, maternal and paternal. A brother that was kidnapped and raped repeatedly almost every single day for years and years. And, you know, the guilt that Carrie said that he held, I believe that he probably did. But violent sexual fantasies regarding little girls when he was only seven was a huge red flag before the kidnapping ever happened. I just, I don't even know where to begin with this case, guys. What do you think? Leave me a comment if you're watching the video down below, or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. You can always email me at serialkillinginstagram, all one word, at gmail.com. And as always, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you because I know you guys could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thank you and have a great day.